Courtney. Hey, Kara. How are you? I'm I'm a little tired today. The weather has finally changed into actual fall. And though I love fall, I just want to stay in bed right now. How about you? I also am tired and would love to stay in bed. However, I just got back from Las Vegas a few hours ago. So that is why I am tired. It's Can I ask what this was? Honestly, it was just a vacation. We oh, just nice. decided that we wanted to do a fun weekend vacation mm-hmm. and sang a ton of karaoke and did a tiny bit of gambling. And I'm down $2, though. That was it. Hey. So I was very pleased. Hey, I would say that's pretty darn good. So what was the motivation for Vegas? It was just fun and flights were cheap. From ah. Colorado Springs, flights are incredibly cheap on random weekends. So you can go for like mm. 50 bucks round trips. So what? it was like... That doesn't exist anywhere from South Bend if I wanted to fly. Granted, I can only fly to seven airports period from here. But still, that's wild. 50 bucks. That's impressive. You need to come to Colorado Springs. Just fly here and then you'll get the cheap tickets to go (laughs) everywhere else. Exactly. Oh my goodness. But fall is here. So that is exciting. Uh, And I'm also excited for our guest today, who is Dee Jolly. And they are currently a second year PhD student working with friend of the pod, Zachary Dubois at the University of Oregon. And Dee finished their undergrad from the University of Florida in 2016 and master's degree in medical anthropology and cross-cultural practice, which what a cool degree, by the way, from Boston University in 2018. And I have this memory of like, I'm pretty sure I met Dee at the HBAs. But I was not in my right state of mind during the HBAs last year with my sinus infection plus allergic reaction to the antibiotic that I have very few memories of of that conference. (laughs) Like those who knew me and were my friends were, that are my friends and saw me at the conference, just saw me scratching at my like massive rash across my body and being like, I'm going to my room taking Benadryl and not talking to anyone for the next 24 hours. <laughs> so I have a memory of maybe meeting Dee, but I'm not sure. But anyway, they are here. So let's go ahead and bring them on. Hi, Dee. I do remember you. I'm telling Courtney, like, I know I met Dee and I'm pretty sure I talked with them, but I was in such a state during the yeah. HBA <laughs> that it's all a blur to me. And so now that I see your face, like, I remember you. That's okay. The HBAs were all sorts of funky. And I can't say I've ever been to a conference in a casino before. Anyway, Dee, welcome to the show. <laughs> and thank you thank so you. much for, for taking the time today. And so we always start the show off in the same way for everybody. And that's getting to know your anthropology mm-hmm. origin story. So you had a really interesting, you got your degree from Florida and then a medical anthropology and cross-cultural practice degree as part of your master's. But Tell us the journey, how you got interested in all of this and why you decided to pursue a career in anthropology. Totally. Thank you so much for having me. Um, So I've always had an interest in health and this idea of what makes us healthy, in part because I grew up with a disabled immigrant parent. So from very early on, I was exposed to cultural differences about how people would think about their health and what they should do about their health. Um, Because I would see this disconnect happening between what doctors were saying to my parents and what was actually happening in my house. And so I thought that this meant that I wanted to be a culturally competent physician, Um, whatever that means. I don't really know if we can be really culturally competent, Um, but this is what I was convinced of. 
And so I went off to undergrad and I thought maybe I'll pick up a minor in something that sounds really interesting while I do my pre-med requirements. And anthropology sounded really, really interesting to me because I liked this idea of studying what it meant to be human. Although I didn't really fully understand what that meant at the time, um, but it sounded great when I heard it. So as part of my minor, I took a course in evolutionary medicine. And like I said, if I'm being honest, I really had no idea what evolutionary medicine actually was when I signed up for the class. But that class completely changed everything for me. So that class really opened my eyes to this idea that health was so much more than the product of our individual decisions, which I kind of knew intrinsically, but no one had ever said that to me. I just really did not know that that was a way of thinking about our health. And so I ended up picking up anthropology as a second major um, instead of it being my minor and then decided that this is what I wanted to do with my career. And so I completely pivoted away from this idea of being a doctor, which was like a shock to my parents because that's all they had heard me say that I wanted to do since I was like four years old onwards. After telling them what anthropology was and what I wanted to do, they kind of started to get behind it. But for sure, it was a shock to my family. Before you go on, I want to make sure we give props where they are due. Who taught that EVMED course to you back in undergrad? Dr. Allison Young, um, who was a fantastic medical anthropologist. Good. We always like giving props when when good professors are called out. It's, anyway, I'm sorry. Go on. <laughs> so I ended up getting my master's degree in medical anthropology from Boston University. And there I kind of focused on understanding healthcare experiences of LGBTQ folks of color in the Boston area through this intersectional systems level perspective. And after that, I did some applied work in clinical trans health. But ultimately, I ended up deciding that I wanted to take my research in a slightly different direction away from the clinical path. And so I ended up coming to the University of Oregon to work with Dr. Du Bois in his Stress Adaptation and Resilience Lab, um, STAR for short. And I decided to choose that lab for my PhD studies because I was really, really interested in the work that the STAR lab was doing to map how lived experiences of stress and stigma become embodied among transgender people and affect their health and well-being. Um, stress is something that we talk a lot about in trans health, especially with respect to mental health. But there's much less conversation that's happening about what this means in terms of people's physical health. So this was a really unique lab when I kind of read about this. And I was like, oh, my God, this is what I want to do with my life. I didn't know someone else was doing this. This is so cool. So I ended up coming to UO and Dr. Du Bois was very happy to have me. And so this project that I presented at the 2023 HBAs aimed to kind of unravel the effects of stress and marginalization on trans people's health and well-being, as well as the different factors that moderate and change those effects. I thought HBA would be the great place to kind of start to have this conversation with other people because the other people at HBA also think about our biology in very holistic ways. So you were speaking about your study and what you presented at the HBAs, and there were a bunch of different surveys and measures to better understand both stress and stigma experiences, as well as their impacts on health. So can you take us through some of these and explain how you are measuring stress and stigma and health? So for this analysis, we primarily use the Gender Minority Stress and Resilience Scale to measure stress and stigma. So we use this measure because the GMSR aims to specifically measure the marginalization-related stresses that are endured by transgender and gender-diverse people. Um, so this is different from other measures of stress that are more generally experienced by everybody and not just specifically transgender and gender-diverse people. 
So the GNSR has several unique subscales that measure stress and stigma, including measures of discrimination, victimization, rejection, non-affirmation, and internalized prejudice, among others. So for this analysis, we combined the discrimination, rejection, and victimization subscales to measure the amount of enacted stigma that participants had experienced in the past year. This larger study does also include other measures of stress, such as the perceived stress scale and the Trier inventory of chronic stress. And we are planning on using these broader measures of stress in other future work as well. Um, but for this specific analysis, we did focus on just that past year enacted stigma. In terms of health and health outcomes, um, for this analysis, we focused on using patient recorded outcome measure measuring global health, which is a self-reported measure of how someone rates their overall health, and the physical health questionnaire. And so the broader study does also include other measures of health. Um, so these include biomarkers of health, such as um, C-reactive protein and cortisol. But we also asked people about whether or not they had very specific health conditions, rheumatoid arthritis, asthma, those sorts of things as well. For our moderating variables in this analysis, we included tons of different scales, including things like depression, resilience, perceived social support, as well as a really wide range of social demographics, such as race, gender identity, current state of residence, and urbanicity of the current area where someone was, was residing. In part, this reflects that we just had a really, really diverse sample that was really intentionally created to be diverse, which is really different for trans health studies, which are normally really, really homogenous populations that come from clinical samples. So they're largely white, they're very young. And this study is kind of unique because it's intentionally tried to not do that. So perhaps you could actually go into that because this is part of the trans resilience and health across sociopolitical context study. So when you say it's diverse, what do you mean? Because I know it's broken up by different states. Could you kind of describe which states they are and why they were chosen? So this overall study was a trans-led community-engaged study that aimed to understand how place and sociopolitical events relate to health and resilience for trans and gender diverse people. So this study actually wrapped up data collection before I joined the STAR Lab, so I was very grateful to kind of jump in right on the data analysis side, although I'm sad that I wasn't part of the data collection process. Um, I would have loved to have taken part in that. And so this study came to be in October of 2018, when the Trump administration leaked a memo that tried to rigidly define gender and sex in ways that would further oppress trans um, and non-binary people. So in light of this um, and other attacks on trans and non-binary people, Dr. Du Bois and Dr. Jay Puckett over at Michigan State University um, set out to study the effects of sociopolitical context in, on health and resilience for trans and non-binary people. And so this is a multi-site study um, that intentionally includes people from Michigan, Nebraska, Tennessee, and Oregon. And these states were intentionally selected because they have four very different sociopolitical climates for transgender and gender diverse people. By collecting in-depth interviews, biomarkers, and monthly surveys from 158 transgender and gender diverse people living in those four states, we aim to understand the effects of oppression and marginalization on those people. And so we also hope that this research can be used to advocate for greater protection and more inclusive policies for trans folks in the future, um, which feels really important given the kind of current political environment that we're living in. Well, I love that you that you guys included uh, Michigan, Oregon, Nebraska, and Tennessee because it does cover a wide range of cultural and political dynamics. But the results did indicate that you saw no differences between the states, but you did between urban and rural environments. Why do you think that is? 
Yeah, so that is a really great question. Um, I suspect that we didn't see differences between the states, largely because despite the range of sociopolitical climates in these states, there's not actually significant differences in the amount of past year enacted stigma that was experienced by the participants in each of these four states, which is kind of surprising given the sociopolitical climate. And it's entirely possible that this would change if we repeated the study now, because things have gotten so um, so much worse, frankly, in many of these places. So for example, in Tennessee, things have definitely gone backwards for trans and gender diverse people. Whether or not that would then be associated with a rise in enacted stigma in that area is kind of unknown, but it would be really, really important to kind of repeat this and figure out whether this is different there now. The other thing that is kind of important to note with this is that enacted stigma didn't differ, but anticipated stigma, which we didn't look at in this particular analysis, um, it does differ between states. And so the amount of stigma that you anticipate very much driven by where you are. And so that also may be a different avenue to look at and um, test in future research for sure. In terms of urban and rural living environments, our results suggested that living in a rural setting was associated with experiencing fewer physical symptoms, but not with someone's overall rating of their health. And so this kind of differs from the published literature that is out there in terms of rural health and what health tends to look like for people living in those environments, which typically people who live in rural environments are more likely to have chronic health conditions, overall worse health because of lack of access to care and things like that. So it's kind of interesting that we saw that there were fewer physical symptoms experienced by these people in these areas. There is some evidence that people in rural areas experienced less stress overall, partially because, well, if you're living in a rural environment, maybe you have better access to nature. Um, maybe you're farther away from things like roads and other things that like might be just stressful to be around. But really, there's just a, a large need for better, more research on the experiences of rural, transgender, and gender diverse people, because frankly, we just don't know a whole lot about those people and what they what their lives look like. I'm also interested in looking at the rural environments and, you know, you're, you're talking about roads and how, you know, and I was thinking population density as well, like maybe there are fewer chances for, you know, negative occurrences to happen. Right. But I also was thinking about nutrition as well. I was thinking, you know, maybe people in rural environments are more likely to be growing fresh fruits and vegetables, and that could be positively impacting health. Um, but yeah, no, that is incredibly interesting. And now it's a good follow-up study for you to conduct. So I'm very eager for 100%. you to do, do another a follow-up, but make sure you include fruits and veggies because now I want to know. Yeah, that is a great hypothesis for sure. I could definitely see that access to better, um, more nutritious foods would totally play a role there. So then what's the big takeaway from this? And the big takeaway from the study might be, right, we have 10 million more questions and that's fine. But, you know, folks listening to this podcast or eventually seeing the paper that'll be published from this down the line, what, what do you take away from this? So the big picture here is that enacted stigma has direct negative consequences for the physical health of transgender and gender diverse people, which this helps to shed light on the large number of health inequities that we know transgender and gender diverse people experience, because it would suggest that enacted stigma plays a really significant role in causing these inequities, which, you know, we spend a lot of time in trans health 
focusing on identifying these health disparities and saying, wow, look, this thing exists, but we don't really understand how and why these things tend to happen. So this is really kind of a first step in saying, okay, but here is a direct link between enacted stigma and people's physical health. And so given the current political climate and the associating rises in violence and um, hatred and homicide, frankly, towards um, transgender and gender diverse people, it's arguably even more important to now consider how these experiences of enacted stigma are going to shape people's health, and as well as how we can improve these conditions and not exacerbate the existing health inequities that are there. You do mention a really great, great point, improving. What do you think as a society like could be done to improve and to be an ally to transgender and gender diverse people? For sure. That is a really great question. Um, so even in this poster, we do see that resilience is a major factor that is very significantly associated with a decrease in physical health symptoms. Um, so for sure, promoting individual resiliency is important, but I think even more important than that, it's important to consider the kind of overall climate that produces enacted stigma. You know, the stigma is not happening inside of a vacuum. Um, it's produced culturally, and every day we're kind of seeing this get more and more intense um, in terms of legislation, but also kind of the public discourse around trans health and what it means to be trans. And should we allow trans people to access transition services? What should we do with trans youth? You know, those kinds of questions. Yes, that's more of the upstream cause, but I think things will not get better until we start to address that kind of upstream societal cause. In order to be better to trans folks and kind of improve conditions, I think it's really important that we have these kinds of conversations. I think this is a huge step in kind of improving lives of transgender and gender diverse people. Um, to actually say, hey, this is a thing. You are not going through this alone. And also, you are not crazy. This is not happening in your head. Because for a lot of people, they're being told there's nothing wrong with you. Um, when they go seek care from a doctor, they're getting told, you know, we don't see anything in your blood work. So clearly, it's just stress and you need to be less stressed. But how do we make people less stressed? We have to do something about it. So I think even just supporting the trans people in our lives and saying, hey, you're not alone in this fight and I'm with you, I think that can go such a long way. I think that's a really wonderful point and an interesting one too that kind of goes back to my my other question that was somewhat related to your work, but not about that anticipated uh, stigma of just you know seeing social media posts and news articles about the legislation that's being passed of the role that plays in the anticipated stigma and then how that actually correlates to the lived experience of interpersonal interactions. Absolutely fascinating and wide open for, for more research, which leads me to the next actual question. What's next for you? So you're in your second year of your PhD. Um, and so you're probably starting to formulate these ideas about what your dissertation is going to be. So you can start working on some grants next year, I imagine. Yes. So I actually started submitting my first um, set of grants over the summer. So my that was goodness. Big. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Um, very exciting for sure. Um, so in terms of next steps, so my dissertation research is in a very similar vein to what I presented here at HBA, but it aims to take a more explicitly intersectional approach um, with understanding the health and well-being of transgender um, people of color specifically. So one thing that we did in this poster was that we looked at race and the effects of race on physical health. 
But the thing is, we didn't have experiences of racism. Um, we had race as a category. And one of the issues with this approach is that categories are not a proxy for lived experience, even though we often use them as such. But the problem with that is that there's a lot of variation in lived experience within a specific community. So just because I might identify as a trans person, it doesn't mean that I have the same experiences as the next trans person in the room next to me. Even if we're living in the exact same place, going through the exact same things, you know, that doesn't make us monolithic in our experience. And so this is kind of in direct contrast to a lot of the work that's being done in intersectionality in trans health. Um, which is really categorically based using these large population level databases. And for sure, when you're working with that kind of data, you don't necessarily have the autonomy of collecting and adding in questions about lived experience and stressors and things like that. But the joy of planning my own dissertation is that I am not limited by those same constraints because I have um, the ability to plan my own data. So I want to quantify both exposure to racism and these gender-related marginalization stressors and understand their interactions. But what I suspect is that, you know, these are not going to stack onto each other the way that we often think that intersectionality means, like, the more social positions you have that are marginalized, the worse off you're going to be. But that's not necessarily how things work in practice. So, for example, I am a transgender person of color, and my experiences with racism helped me deal with the experiences of transphobia that I experience on a daily basis. I'm a little bit more resilient to that. I don't necessarily feel them so acutely as someone else who may not have that shared experience of racism. And so my dissertation really tries to unpack all of these relationships and understand their relation to allostatic load and chronic pain. So there's also a secondary focus on my work in terms of understanding that relationship, even just between allostatic load and chronic pain. So this chronic stress and that multi-system dysregulation that's happening in response to that chronic stress, and then what that actually means in terms of people's lived experiences of their health from a day-to-day -day perspective. Well, that is so incredibly interesting and so powerful. You know, we hear about people's research all the time and it's like, Oh, that's interesting. But to have a project that is so powerful and, and I see you laughing, Kara, but you know, it's like everybody's research is interesting, but then when you hear about a project and you meet somebody who is so incredibly passionate, who genuinely wants to make the world a better place and to take their experiences that perhaps were negative and turn them into something for the greater good. I mean, that it's just incredibly amazing to, to see. Thank you. And I know this is going to lead me into the next question, which like kind of comes out of nowhere, but on a fun note, so thank you for what you're doing, but on a fun note, we are trying to bring back the HBA talent show for the annual meeting. And we know that you will be there presenting amazing, powerful research, but we would like to know, drum roll, what your talent will be. What will you bring to share at the meeting? Gosh, that's such a good question. I feel like my hidden talent is really sardonic stand-up comedy. But the thing yes! is, I can't like, I like that's the problem. Is like I want you to do something right now, but I'm not putting you on the spot. I promise. <laughs> I am really good at delivering deadpan um, punchlines that just make everybody crack up. And the thing is, I often don't mean to be funny when I'm doing it. I'm just really, really sarcastic and really, really, really jaded with things. I feel often. like I feel like this needs to be an actual like poster session where like you go from poster to poster and just like roast it 
in some sardonic way with people fully understanding that you're just you're doing it as a as a bit <laughs> gosh that would be very fun although i don't know how well received it would be if everyone knew going into it <laughs> i don't know what this was that it's a poster roast oh that even sounds good the poster roast a poster roast and then people can put their posters in it they can choose to exactly do it. roast my poster Oh, that would be so funny. I love that. We just came up with a brilliant idea that I'm sure will have so many issues from the the (laughs) e-board. It's highly unethical, but it would be so much fun. Like, who needs ethics when we're having a good time? I know, the poster roast. Oh, like, you chose that font? Really? (laughs) That color scheme is horrendous. (laughs) Where are your barges? Oh, push I don't feel like this poster terrible. is within. <laughs> yes, this poster is not within the regulations. I think it's a quarter of an inch off. You need to take it down uh, immediately. You should come with a measuring tape. Oh my goodness, yes. so good! Wow. Well, we've blown this open in an unexpected direction. Uh, <laughs> D, thank you so much for taking the time to talk about your incredibly important and timely work because I think you are absolutely right in that things have been getting worse. I, I think it's more important than ever for people to understand the harm that can be caused by the rhetoric, by the polarization, by the legislation. This is important and this has meaning and will change things. So thank you so much for doing the work that you do. And thank you for taking the time to talk to us about it today. Thank you so much for having me. This was great. Of course. And do you have any social media? All the names and, and platforms are changing these days. But if someone wanted to follow you and your work, how might they best do that? Totally. So I do have a Twitter X, whatever you want to call it now. My handle is at M-X-D-E-E-J-O-L-L-Y. So Mix D Jolly. So if you want to follow me, that is probably the best place to do so. Perfect. And Courtney, I think you recently signed up for something, didn't you? I did. I am on Twitter slash X and my handle is Holy Holy. Oh, yes. Holy late, holy. I remember that being so good. Uh, and I am Kara Akabak. This has been the Sausage of Science. Thank you all so much for listening. And again, thank you, Dee, for joining us. Thank you so much.